I uh, appreciated what Grove said about today. They're waving at me. Same one. I don't think you're loud enough. You don't think I'm loud enough. I should be louder. Okay. How loud do you want me to be? <laughs> so some people go like this in the audience. Some people are going like this. <laughs> okay. Please keep waving if I get very meditative and start talking like this. You can, you can let me know, but I'll do my best to be loud. I was going to say, when I didn't feel quite so loud, that um, I was appreciating what Grove said about today, about the importance of this day on retreat and this time of retreat. Because generally the mind thinks, oh, the retreat's over, the retreat's ending, or this is the end. Or, and you can watch your energy and your um, involvement and your engagement with your practice right now because, the, because of the idea that the retreat is ending, which we haven't told you yet, but it's not ending. It's just changing form. And you will continue your retreat for the next, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, whatever it might be for you. Because practice, this is only a small part of your Dharma retreat practice. This is just your week at Spirit Rock practice. But the practice is much bigger than that. And I... Uh, very much appreciated us uh, focusing on the heart quality of compassion today because it's such a key component of waking up. Personally, I just don't believe it's possible to wake up without kindness or without compassion or without care because dukkha is one of the main doorways to awakening. And to be with dukkha, to be real with dukkha, to really look at it directly, like a little bit no bullshit about dukkha. And I don't mean just great, horrible dukkha. I mean even the little dukkha. But to really start to live your practice takes, it's compassionate. And it needs compassion. It needs the heart to wake up and start to function in a more fundamental way than we're used to. <clears throat> and there's a, one little piece I would like to speak about tonight is about what we, something we've been talking about a little bit, or we've been, we've been talking about different aspects of what I'm going to say in a moment, in different ways, and you'll hopefully you'll hear it, or you've already heard it. Sometimes some of you have brought it up, and it's about the teaching in Buddhism of the two truths, two truths, right? Like there's the four truths, the four noble truths, and then there's the teachings of the two truths, um, and they're very important. They're the teachings of relative and ultimate reality teachings of relative and ultimate reality. 
And I'll read you a teaching from Nagarjuna, who said this, who said, the Dharma taught by Buddhas, the Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot enjoy the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without knowing the difference, without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. So this is one of the, I feel, beautiful teachings about the two truths and a pointing at conventional truth, conventional reality that we all know, and what's sometimes called ultimate reality, or he's talking about a sublime reality, which we also know, although we may be less familiar with, or not as, it's not as f- familiar, that's what I want to say, familiar to us, we know it, or we, or we have an intuition of it, or we've had an experience here or there, or on retreat sometimes. And what he's saying, he's talking about the relationship between the two truths. And it's a teaching that is woven into what we're doing here. It's woven into what we're doing here because we're studying relative truth as we sit here. We're studying this, right? I I could point at each of you. We're studying this human experience and this ordinary experience, this everyday experience, breathing, sitting, walking, body, feeling, motions, moods, thoughts, ideas, beliefs, Mind states, sounds, sights, tastes, touch. We're studying the human experience in order to illuminate the depth of the depth of human experience, which is talked about and pointed at as the ultimate or the sublime. So we study the conventional because this is where the ultimate reveals itself, through the ordinary. And so, please hang with me for a second, because, of course, that's a paradox. And I seem to have a thing about paradoxes right now, which, you know, okay. And so we're learning how to come into relationship with our ordinary, conventional, very human experience 
so that the ultimate, so that the sublime can reveal itself because it's not separate from what's sitting right in your seat. It's not further up the mountain on spirit, at Spirit Rock and we have to go up further or we have to go to the next retreat center that's even better. It's, it's right here, the sublime. And together, the conventional and the ultimate become a seamless practice because we discover the Dharma through our own direct experience, through this human experience. And in my mind, it very much fulfills a certain way it's talked about in Zen, which is no part left out. Right? It's right through this. And we're not trying to get rid of any of it. We're trying to be aware of it and discover what it means to be aware in a way that is not separate from, right? So we're not being aware, I'm not being aware of Eugene over there, or Eugene's feelings are over there, or his sensations, or his sounds, or his sights. Or his, no, it's all right here, I want to be aware of it. And what does it mean to be aware of it in this, what I call, I use different words, but I, I like to do this motion, and what I call in a unified way, without being attached to it, even though we're right here in the middle of it. And there's a beautiful poem from Izumi Shikibu, who was quoted earlier, I believe, by Anna. She said, watching the moon, watching the moon, watching the moon at dawn, solitary, Mid-sky, I know myself completely. No part left out. That's a beautiful understanding of the two truths leading to, and this is not Buddhist language, Eugene language, one truth, reality, revealing itself. And just as an aside, always in, in at least in Japanese Zen, I believe it's true a lot in Japanese Zen. The moon is a symbol of enlightenment. So we're, we're, we're working with the two truths, which, uh, and remember, so we're saying, you know, relative and ultimate truth. Here's one of the great paradoxes that I like about the two truths. They're equally true. They're equally true. It's not, oh, there's ultimate and then conventional is looked down on. And, you know, oh, let's get rid of the conventional because we're going to... No, they're equally true. And we want to know both of them fully. And it's part of the paradox of everything being empty, because that's a term that's used in the Dharma very much, empty, meaning it's not concretized, reality is not concretized. Everything is empty and everything is right here. Everything is full at the same time, but it's not full in a concretized way. It's full in a real way, which is also empty 
or changing or ephemeral, which we've been talking about, the paradoxical nature of impermanence, that there's everything is rising and passing. So, we're at a certain rising and passing right now. And the, the rising passing we're at is we're at the end of the formal retreat. Right? And that's a very common thing that happens on every retreat I've been on. <laughs> it's been an end. <laughs> and, you know, and they have an arc and, you know, whether it's you know, whether it's a day or a week or a month or three months or however long, you know, they start, there's a beginning, and then there's a period where you a little bit forget about beginning and ends, and then, oh, there's the end, just, you know, like we're going to it or it's coming towards us, either way. And that's a really, again, as we were saying, in terms of impermanence, that's a very common way to start to pay attention is watch the beginnings and endings of anything. Like the talk has begun and it's going to end. Or your feelings right now about the talk have begun and they're going to change, meaning this particular feeling, I hope. Well, I don't even know. Maybe you feel good about it so far. But, um, <laughs> but it's going to change and end. And then your mood is going to begin, change, end etc., etc. And one of the beautiful um, teachings that we're all um, immersed in right now is about dukkha. And how beautiful that the Buddha said, oh, well, I teach one thing, dukkha and the end of dukkha, right? So end becomes part of even the reality of dukkha. Or it's, that's a potential and, and again, even in the teachings on uh, self, is that there's also not self. And it doesn't mean the self ends, but we're not bound to it. That's all that is. There's more. That ends also, and then begins again maybe. But, but reality keeps having its unconcretized texture. To it. And when I say reality, I also mean we, because we are a manifestation of reality. And we're unconcretized. Our hearts and minds, our bodies are not solid, are not fixed. They're alive and changing and dynamic. And I wanted to end they will change and end in certain ways at certain times. And I want to talk about some of that tonight as part of what it means to be at the, at, well, I'm going to say it two ways, what it means to be alive and what it means to be at this phase of life which we call aging or older. And first I'll read a... Uh, a teaching from Sun Sanim. How many people know Sun Sanim? Oh, really? Great. Sun Sanim was a Korean Zen teacher who, who I knew who was, he was 
wild. He, and he, he beautiful, beautiful teacher, beautiful being, great teacher. And he went to the Bodhi tree in India and he wrote this poem. He said, once a great man sat beneath the Bodhi tree. Once a great man sat beneath the Bodhi tree. He saw the eastern star became enlightened. He absolutely believed his eyes. He absolutely believed his eyes. And he believed his ears, his nose, his tongue, body, mind. He absolutely believed his eyes, his ears, his nose, his tongue, body, and mind. The sky is blue. The earth is brown. And so he was awakened to the truth and attained freedom beyond birth and death. He absolutely believed his experience, the fundamental experience. Now I'm going to interpret a little bit. This is Eugene interpretation. He believed the fundamental or phenomenological experience. He didn't necessarily believe the content, his ideas about it, beliefs about it. No, he just believed... He actually paid attention to the amazing simplicity of what's here, and he woke up, right? And he was awakened to the truth, and he attained freedom beyond birth and death. And so I wanted to read that, because it's a beautiful poem of the Buddha's awakening. And I, as part of our practice working with life, aging, and what we've talked about a bit while we were here, and I'm going to talk about some more, is death, because it's part of human reality. It's part of the reality of all of nature, as far as I can tell, right? Any, any being, right? I don't, you know, the spider, the insect, or the birds, or the... I want to say kangaroos, but we don't have them out right out here. The, you know, but whatever they are, the 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 turkeys. That's better. It's a little more syntonic with where we are. Um, uh, the deer, you know, um, the various ways life manifests. Even the plants. I mean, everything that is born lives, changes, and stops living. And that's part of our reality. And that, and this may be the best thing I can say all night, it's a normal part of, of life. It's normal. Just very normal that we live. I mean, I don't know about that. That's amazing that we live, really, to me. But we die, which also has its amazing, but it's also normal. If we live, we will die. <clears throat> and in Zen, they say, if you go to Zen Center in San Francisco, they have a, I don't wish I had one of these, they have a big block of wood, big block of wood that calls you to practice, and they bang on it, and they don't bang with the padded part, they bang, and they bang on this big block of wood. And this is how you get called to practice. 
And on the block of wood, which always touched me, because I did a little bit of Zen practice when I was young, it says they have something, they have the Dharma written there on this block of wood where they're hitting it. And it says, great is the matter of birth and death. Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken, do not waste your life. And then you go and they do this hitting. Then it gets quicker as it gets closer to the when the, when the door is going to shut, and they, it's not spirit rock. They won't let you in after the door shut. And, and then the meditation starts, and the doors are shut. And what also impressed me about this piece of wood, the Han, is it gets hit every day a number of times you know, for meditation. And over time, the Han dies. It, it gets eaten away by being hit and then there's a hole in the hung. And I, to be really honest, I don't know what they do with it. I've asked them for a dead hung, but I've never gotten one. <laughs> but but I'm, I have some strange interests like that, so okay. Um, But I love what it says. Great is the matter of birth and death. And here's another important piece in in Japanese or in in Zen Center Zen. Birth and death are always hyphenated. Birth and death. They're hyphenated because they're connected. They're not two things. Life and death are one thing. There are different parts of one thing. You don't have birth without death. You don't have death without birth. They're connected. And we are part of that. We are in that amazing connection that's called birth and death. And so we have this ending, which is both ordinary and profound, right? I mean, it's really, I have a lot of different thoughts, feelings about it, but I think it's just amazing that we're, consciousness is alive in this way, where I can say something and it makes some sense to you, Etc. And we can even, there's communication even just by looking that happens, that consciousness communicates in this human form. <clears throat> and that we're alive. And here, this is really also, let's, uh, truth is very helpful here. I find it amazing to think, oh, we're really not going to be alive? Like, I get it. I get all that stuff. I get, oh, yeah, death, you know, but. But what is that? And I've had enough close encounter right now, so I know a little bit more than I know, and I still have this question and have personally some actual curiosity about, oh, what is death? What actually happens? Because I don't know. But I know that what I know is not the end of the story. 
<clears throat> so I'm, I'm, you know, I have my relationship with death, practice, life, Buddhism. I'm great. I've been very moved by Marana Sati. Marana means death. Sati is mindfulness. Mindfulness of death. Marana Sati. And I've taught it a lot. And there's a whole way to teach it that we're not going to do where you really do a very intimate reflection on death and the fact that that is part of our life. And there's, in, in uh, Maranasati also has, uh, 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 in, the, in the original days, the Buddha would send people to the charnel ground to meditate on dying bodies. And that's intense thing to do. And I've spent a lot of time, many years, I was part of Zen hospice, basically from the beginning. And I was a volunteer for many years, working with people who were dying and their families. And then I also trained people for many years and ran a group at, for people who were uh, ill and dying, but also I ran a group for the families of people who were ill and dying. And so I've spent a little time in this world. And it's, it's, I just, it's fascinating to me that we live and die. And Grove mentioned this quote the other day, but I'll say it again from the Mahabharata, which is, what is the greatest marvel? And, and what's answered is, each day death strikes and we live as though we are immortal. Right? Each day death strikes and we live as though we are immortal. This is the greatest marvel in the Mahabharata. The, and it's the illusion that we're going to live forever. And it's a very common, comfortable idea that we don't really challenge or move towards, you know, because it brings up all kinds of stuff for us. And the reason why we're talking about it, in addition to it being the aging retreat, and it's one of, like I think I said early on, it's one of the reasons I totally appreciate this retreat, is this is a little bit of a no-bullshit retreat. Because people are old enough, that's not what, they don't want to just hear the, they want to be real and see what does it mean to practice at this phase of life, because we're not 20, right? It's not like so far away. And the fact that we're going to die is more real than it is, at least for most of us, as we get older. And so the Buddha, when he talked about Maranasati, mindfulness of death, he said this, he said, of all the footprints in the jungle, that of the elephant is supreme. Of all the footprints in the jungle, that of the elephant is supreme. Of all the mindfulness practices, mindfulness of death is supreme. So we just, and, and I'm happy to teach this actually to anybody, not because I'm, I think death is great or I want to glorify it or anything, or I think it's depressing. It's just real. It's just part of reality. And we're all going to, we all are already dealing with it whether we're dealing with it consciously or not. Mm. Um, This is from Sogyal Rinpoche, 
from the Tibetan tradition talking about Maranasati. He said, according to the wisdom of the Buddha, we can use our lives to prepare for death. We can use our lives to prepare for death. We're not condemned to go out empty-handed at death, to meet the unknown. We can begin here and now to find meaning in our lives. So now you're, you're hearing or seeing the relationship between life and death is practice because it's not just about what happens when we die, but when we start to get a little more comfortable or relaxed or intimate with the truth of the way things are, it informs how we live our life because life, at least in my mind, like the preciousness of life becomes even clearer, that it's an amazing mystery that we're here and we're conscious and we're alive, and it's not forever. It it has its ticking component to it. So he says, and we can begin here and now to find meaning in our lives. We can make of every moment an opportunity to change and to wholeheartedly, precisely, and with peace of mind prepare for death and eternity. And, and, and the Buddhist approach, life and death are seen as one whole, W-H-O-L-E, is seen as one whole. Death is a mirror in which the entire meaning of life is reflected. And that's a, that's a beautiful understanding. It's not making death bad or horrible. It's just part of the reality that helps us see clearly about life itself. And great. And it reminds me, I couldn't, I forgot, I meant to look it up, but I know this, a similar kind of uh, perspective is in the Carlos Castaneda teachings about, oh, you always have death on your shoulder, and you should know that. And then it helps you in dealing with reality in a real way. Because none of us know when anything is going to happen. Right? I mean, we can do this because it's an aging retreat and it makes a lot of sense. But we can, this practice, I teach this for anybody at any age, and I think it's valuable at every age. Here, here's a personal, one personal little thing. This is my, uh, I wish we were all a little closer. I'm used to doing this in smaller groups, but. I'm trying to see when this is from. This is from about uh, 15 years ago. And it's my heart rate. Because I was in an airport going to teach, I think I'm in Montana. And uh, something started happening to my heart. And I'm, you know, I'm a little bit sensitive. And I'm like, that's sure beating fast. And I could feel it. Boom, boom, boom. You know, it was like, and, and I know a little about heart. It was like, oh, that's fast, that's fast. Okay, what's happening, what's happening? And so, and I didn't know, and I thought, oh, I need to breathe a little deeper, relax. No, that wasn't doing it. So I, I, uh, I told the person at the desk, and she immediately called the, whoever it is, emergency people, who showed up with a heart rate monitor. They took my shirt off right there. They put it on me right there and started checking my heart. And... And this is what was happening. I wonder if it says how many rates. 155. 
per minute, which is not bad when I'm biking at all. I can do that. But this is, that was fast for, I was sitting around, I was relaxed. So, and, and then they, they told me what to do. I can't remember what it's called. I'm still recovering a little memory from my last accident. But, but um, it's a, it, they said, oh, your heart has gotten, uh, might have gotten uh, uh, an electronic kind of impulse, internal electric, not external, and, and you need to pop it out. And you pop it out by taking a really big breath and then pretending you're defecating. That's, that's what you do. <laughs> you know, excuse And it just, go, and, then, and then I released the breath and that was it. And then the heart went back to normal. And I've never, I maybe had that a little bit. It you know, came and went for a few months or something, but it's gone, it's fine. But really what I'm pointing at is, oh, you never know. We never know. I never know what's going to happen. Whether you're 60, 70, 80, 90, or 10, 5, 15, 20, 25, 30, 40, whatever it is. You know, I, I had a serious accident a few years ago that I wasn't planning on. Um, it was a bike accident. And... Uh, and, uh, and it was, you know, who knows what things mean. I don't know what things mean. But it was on the Buddhist bike pilgrimage. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> and, and I'd done it a few times. It's a 140-mile ride or something. And I'd done it a few times. A beautiful ride and great sangha doing it together. And we leave from here. And, you know, and I'm a teacher, so they asked me, they had asked me before to teach a little bit, do a talk, and they'd asked me to do the talk the opening morning from here. And they, and, but they don't, they're not just saying, oh, talk about whatever, you, they tell you what to talk about. So, okay, I'm, I can be respectful sometimes. And, um, and uh, they said, yeah, talk about not knowing. You know, and I, I like to talk about not knowing because you never know what's going to happen. So that, that's what my talk was the morning of my accident, right? Like I did a talk, and then I did a real-life demonstration. Of, <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, and you never know. And it was, and I'm just mentioning this because it was serious enough, it wasn't clear what was going to happen with me. I ended up being helicoptered to the hospital and hospitalized for five weeks and... It was a bad accident, a bad accident, and uh, and I could have died. That definitely was clear to me at a certain point, although there wasn't really a me there who it was clear to. But I, that's a longer story. I'll do another talk on that sometime. But anyhow, so so what Sogil's pointing at is that our reflection, our contemplation on mortality and on the mortality of what is sitting here is helpful can help us live our life in a real way in an honest way in a way where we start to consider what is it and the buddha here this is you know if you read the the text one of the great texts is the mahaparinibbana sutta which is about the buddha's death 
And that's a great text to read about the Buddha. Because what, or at least what I like, is the Buddha knew he was going to die. You know, he had a lot of what are called cities or powers that he didn't promote or anything, but he could see very clearly into reality. He could see he was going to die in a few months. And um, yeah, there's some great stories about all that, how that happened. But, but, um, and so what, what does he do? He, he does what's most important to him. He teaches the Dharma. He goes around teaching. He goes to all the different monasteries and groups that have gotten set up, and he gives his teaching to both, to both monastics and lay teachers, lay people, and he teaches really the path and says, here's the path, follow the path, you know, really of ethics and, and contemplation and wisdom. And it's a beautiful, and, it's, and he teaches people the path, which is about how to live one's life rooted in the Dharma, so that the Dharma flowers, not somewhere else, but right here, right here, because this is where the Dharma flowers in human beings. <clears throat> and so what I the way I think about this archetypal story of the Buddha and his death and his teaching is he's pointing people what's important, even though he's dying. And he's doing what's important to him, even though he's dying. Which is what, and so the questions you can reflect on as part of the Maranasati practice is what's important to you? Or what do you care about? Or what do you most value? Or what do you love? And what do you want to do with your time? Whether you're alive for a week, a month, a year, 30 years, 50 years, whatever it might be, what do you want to do? And it doesn't mean you have to think about this every moment and you know, do it every moment. But it means it start, that contemplation starts to um, um, imbue your reality with what you care about and value. And it also allows you to become real about the things that are most important. Not waiting for something else to happen. <clears throat> so that the truth of death can help us be real, true, honest to ourselves, just to ourselves. That's all we have to start with, because then it'll radiate out everywhere. And one of the things that I I watched happen with my accident, because like I said, serious accident, my uh, daughter who lives in New York and flew out the next day to be with me in the hospital, and um, and we've had a very wonderful relationship, really, for this life and the roles that we've been in. You know, my daughter, I'm father, and uh, we've been very close. And she came out, and she'd never seen me anything like this, really. I've been fairly together person and very fairly healthy uh, during her life. And so it was, and I've watched both as I was getting better and over time now, 
the impact on her, right? Because that shook her up. That was a hard thing to have your dad. Really, at first, they couldn't tell about life and death. They weren't sure. They thought I was going to live, but there was definitely no gear. Or, or what would live, right? Because my body was broken and my mind was broken. And that, I didn't even know about what that was until it happened to me, really. I didn't have any information about that. And so I wasn't there in any kind of usual way. And, uh, and I watched how it impacted her because it was difficult, of course, which it is if anybody we care about is hurt or may die or, you know, it's a bad accident. But I watched how it impacted her reality in her relationship to herself, to her life, to her now husband, to her career, that it, she got more real, like, oh, she learned something, a hard lesson. I don't, I'm not recommending this lesson, but, but it's a lesson we all have to learn. It's something, oh, people die. Human beings die. That's just the truth. You know, dad dies, mom dies, kids die, cousins, friends, relatives, unknown, every, people die. And so I watched how that experience and her dealing with it matured her whole sense of self and reality in a good way. This is from Diane Ackerman. She said, when you consider the inevitability of death, when you consider the inevitability of death, after which we may go out like a candle flame, then it probably doesn't matter if sometimes we are awkward. (laughs) Then it probably doesn't matter if we are awkward sometimes, if we care for another too deeply, or are excessively curious about nature, or are too open to experience, or enjoy a non-stop expanse of the senses in an effort to know life intimately, intimately and lovingly. It, does, it probably doesn't... i got to read that again. I like that. Really. So if it doesn't matter if we're awkward or if we care too deeply or if we're excessively curious or if we're too open to experience or enjoy a non-stop expanse of the senses in an effort to know life intimately and lovingly. It probably doesn't matter if we sometimes look clumsy or get dirty or ask stupid questions or reveal our ignorance or say the wrong thing or light up with wonder like the children that we are. So the profundity of death starts to bring the radiance of illumination through both self and not-self. And in the tradition, it's talked about in more ways than just what I'm talking about so far. It's not just about, oh, human death. Here's another way that Marana Sati is talked about is the understanding of arising and passing, of which human life and death is one manifestation. In addition to death in the conventional sense, Buddhism 
Marana refers to the rising and passing away of all mental and physical phenomena. The rising and passing away of all mental and physical phenomena. The momentariness of existence is described this way. In other words, it's just a moment of reality. And and it's happening right now, just a moment. Thoughts, feelings, sensations, just a moment of it. And then another moment, and then another moment. And we string it together as if it's a solid thing. But if at a certain level of consciousness, you can actually see, oh, it's just a moment. It's just a moment. And you don't have to live at that level, but it has an impact on our minds and hearts when we start to realize a variety of levels of human consciousness and reality. And so it said the momentariness of existence described like beings only have a short instant to live. This is from the Vasudhimaga. Beings only have a, a short, a very short instant to live as a wagon wheel when rolling as well as when standing still, right? Like a wagon wheel. Here's a nice little wheel I have right now. At any time, it rests on a single point. It rests on a single point. And a single point of its rim, just so the life of being endure, beings endures only for the length of a single moment of consciousness. When this is extinguished, so also is the being extinguished, which means, but, the, but then the new moment comes. And so the, the consciousness, at a certain level of reality, is arising and passing moment by moment by moment. And those are some very quick moment by moment by moments. You, you can look for it, but I, don't worry about it. So the, the reflections on death, now at the just moment by moment, and then the human experience, which has to do on reflecting on the inevitability of death and the uncertainty, uncertainty of death. None of us knows when it's going to happen. It's just, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. But who knows when exactly? And the question comes, what helps? Or what's supportive? And from the Buddhist tradition, it's the Dharma that helps. And the time that I've spent paying attention to death has been very you know maybe the best thing word i can use is normalizing about that experience so especially in hospice when i was first there really all kinds of people that i spent time with who then died and it, and they were lovely people and some people actually some of them were not so lovely but but I liked them anyways. They were uh, there was one one family that was totally a little nutty. But you know, but still, it was like human beings, and the, and life, and then life coming and going. <clears throat> but I rem- I mean, for me personally, just touching a dead body, 
like, I've never done that. You know, like, what, what is that? And it's like, there's all the, uh, my ideas about it, and then there's just the reality. And it's different than a live body. And that was amazing to just touch a dead body. And um, also, I, I was with my parents, or really with my mother during her dying process and her dying. And that was amazing to be with her and have her die. And, and I don't mean amazing, always greater. She had the most spiritual, you know, death. But all death is spiritual because the teaching of death is happening for each person because they're letting go of reality in the way they've known it, whoever it is. We're, and we all will. Here, here's my one. Here, I've got to give you a positive. You will all succeed. <laughs> right? We all will succeed. We're all going to die. And we'll do it. And the question is, can, how, and here, from my perspective, how present and awake can we be while it's happening as best as possible? And that doesn't mean you don't take drugs or get help or do any. It means one doesn't know how awake consciousness can be. I learned a lot about how awake consciousness can be even when I wasn't doing anything in my accident. So I have a lot more faith about that. So, so, um, but like, you know, my mother, my father, my father, I wasn't there when it happened, but I, he was 91. My mother was a lot younger. He was 91. And, uh, and he, to be honest, he wanted to die. He was tired. He had said, I'm tired of this. Get me out of here. Will you help me? No, I wasn't, I'm not that liberated that I could help him, but, you know, but I helped him in whatever way I could, but not to die. And, um, and um, it was very powerful to come see him when he was dead, to see his body, be with his body, because it had a surprising positive to it. Because he'd been, he was 91 when he died, and he was tired of it. And, you know, I'm, I could talk to him about all of it. I was fine with that. And I respected it totally. It's clear. But um, it was surprised me when I got with her, his body and hung out with his body. And it was like, and I had this whole different perception of him with his body, which is, oh, he's not an old man anymore. And, it, and that was a good thing at this point. And that so surprised me because I don't think that way. But I got it. For him, he was happy to be done. And, and here's another part. This is more about me. He'd been old, what we call old, for a while. And I'd been holding him in my mind that way. And that released and then all of who he was came back to me because I've known him a long time. And he'd been all kinds of people in those, however, you know, 40, 50 years, whatever it was that I knew him. And uh, yeah, so it was a great waking up for me. Oh, he's, he's not my idea anymore, which was, oh, he's an old man. He's 91. 
And I hope, the only thing I hope about that is I hope you also, and not you, we all also don't hold to our idea, oh, we're an old person, because that has its relative truth, but there's also ultimate truth sitting right here. So two last little things and then I'll end. One is, I didn't, there's other more humorous stories I could have told you and and, uh, I think humor is a good part of life and death because who the hell really knows what's happening? Really. And, And I don't mean we don't know a lot, but but life and maybe death has this mystery to it, which means, oh, there's more we will keep learning about reality. And again, I said this maybe in my small group, maybe in here. It's one of the things I loved about studying with Utejaniya is he talked about the ongoing awakening, the ongoing learning about reality as part of practice. And there's this Japanese story about there's a lot of great death stories in Japanese Zen and, and poems and everything. And so this story about uh, Tahwei, Tahwei, um, and he 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 knew he was going to die, and he told his sangha. You know, he was an abbot. He told his sangha, "Tomorrow I'm going to everybody." And his attendant said, "Well, you, you if you're going to die, you have to write a death verse, because that's part of the tradition." And he said, later he said, without a verse I couldn't die. So he wrote a verse, and here's his verse. Birth is thus. Birth is thus. Death is thus. Birth is thus. Death is thus. Verse or no verse, what's the fuss? I hope I could write something like that someday. (laughs) Uh, And then the last thing is just to tell you a beautiful story about this practice of living and dying. And it's again from the Zen tradition, which, like I say, they talk about it a lot. And it's about a teacher um, who wrote a letter to one of his disciples who was about to die. And he wrote and he said, he said, the essence of your mind is not born. The essence of your mind is not born, so it will never die. The essence of your mind is not born, so it will never die. It is not an existence which is perishable. It is not an emptiness. It is not an emptiness which is mere void. The essence of your mind is not born, so it will not die. It is not an existence which is perishable. It is not an emptiness which is merely void. I know you are very ill. Like a good student, you are facing that sickness squarely. You may not know exactly who is suffering, but question yourself. What is the essence 
of your mind. And Eugene's interpretation of this is, of this, how they use mind is heart-mind. Heart-mind, that's how I say it whenever I'm using. So what is the essence of your heart-mind? Think only of this. You will need no more. Think only of this. You will need no more. Covet nothing. Your end, which is endless, your end, which is endless, is like a snowflake dissolving in the pure air. Your end, which is endless, is like a snowflake dissolving in the pure air. Let's sit for a moment, please. And just for a moment, please simply be aware of the aliveness that is sitting here in whatever way it manifests, whether it's body or sensations or breath or heartbeat or sound or hearing or seeing or smelling or tasting or touching or emotions or feelings or thoughts or mind states or energy or whatever words you use to describe it. Be aware, be intimate with the aliveness that is sitting here right now. Your, your end, which is endless, is like a snowflake dissolving in the pure air. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.